Hey, how's it going? Welcome to episode 24 of Urban Puritano. It's gonna be an amazing episode, but before we get into the episode, I wanted to drop an advertisement. Please visit pilgrimdigital.co for all your website design needs digital marketing needs, and even logo and branding design needs. Again, that's pilgrimdigital.co. Visit us, get to know us. If you dig it, can you dig it? Can you dig it? Please go ahead and contact us and we can support you. Regardless if you're a startup ministry, a podcaster, uh, that is just getting started, or maybe you own a brick and mortar store, whatever the case may be, we are here to help you grow along the way. Please reach out to us at pilgrimdigital.co. And I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Nathan. You'll find more information about me there on the website, pilgrimdigital.co. Please visit us. All right. And now back to the show. Um, Roman Catholics today um, and privately claims titles for himself that he should not prophet, priest, king, and judge and so and it definitely draws you uh, from this world your life overlaps with other people have rooted in kind of this for the cause of the pre-born and he said why should I accept you in my these are thought-provoking things and areas that we could definitely expand upon All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. Good morning, Pastor Brandon. How are you? I'm doing well, by God's grace. Doing very well. How about yourself? Pretty good. Pretty good. Just looking forward to um, Reformation Day 2023. And I wanted to speak with you about some things, not necessarily directly theological, the differences between Rome and Protestant or evangelical theology, but an area perhaps that uh, we could find some common ground with our Romanist and Papist friends. That's right. That's right. Well, absolutely. When we think through uh, Rome and Roman Catholic theology, we need to be very careful. Um, one, because we know that we do have to treat people as individuals made in the image of God, male and female. And we recognize that there are some Roman Catholic friends who perhaps are born-again Christians who the Spirit of God has converted 
and who, Lord willing, soon in time will be led away from heirs and the heirs of um, uh, Rome and the Roman Catholic hierarchy to a place where the truth of God is preached, the scriptures are um, soundly taught, and truth is walked in uh, consistently and, and certainly more faithfully. Sadly, um, Roman Catholics today have many of them dug their heels in when it comes to anathematizing uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would say they do have a different gospel. We would say the Pope blasphemes the living and triune God um, and privately claims titles for himself that he should not and he should repent of. There are glaringly obvious contradictions between what Rome teaches today and has wrongly added to the scriptures concerning the Apocrypha, purgatory, prayer to dead saints. Peter is the first pope for celibacy for priests who do not have the gift of celibacy, um, codifying for the first time ever in the history of, of uh, uh, Christendom these extra books, the Apocrypha, as mentioned earlier, and, and adding to the Old and New Testament. These are serious errors, massive errors that need to be repented of. The, the Mariolatry, uh, claiming titles for Mary that they uh, have clearly in Scripture only grounded Um, or we only have warrant for grounding in Jesus Christ. There's many other things. Hatred of biblical assurance, refusal to share the gospel or evangelize to the Jewish people, Um, watering down uh, some biblical truth concerning uh, things like um, sodomy, and and that's only in recent years with Pope Pope Francis. Um, And then the refusal to practice basic church discipline on on those... uh, like politicians like Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, many, many others who claim to be Roman Catholics. That really mocks their claim to be the one true church from the succession of Peter, that perfect succession from the first century. So if you're listening to this and you're a Roman Catholic friend, we would lovingly urge you to read and study the God-breathed scriptures, to examine your Roman Catholic religion and the teachings of the Roman Catholic hierarchy uh, with the holy words of scripture, the only inerrant, infallible word of God and capable with the Holy Spirit's power of bringing reformation, revival, reconciliation between God and man in Christ, uh, because it is the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone that testify and bear witness to Jesus Christ and His person and His work. He is the only true prophet, priest, king, and judge. And so we urge you to study the Scriptures. Go and read uh, Keith Matheson's The Shape of Sola Scriptura. Watch debates between Dr. James White and uh, Roman Catholic scholar Mitch Pacwa um, that were done years ago. Trent Horn from Catholic uh, Answers has uh, debated James White on a number of other issues as well. James White being the Protestant representative and um, Trent Horn and Mitch Pacwa being the Catholic, Roman Catholic representatives. But we just urge you to watch these things and then uh, and read these things and even visit a Bible-preaching church that goes through book by book, verse by verse, listen to the scriptures, sit under the preaching of the word of God, interact with um, evangelical Christians, Protestants. Uh, That would be our urge and our encouragement to you. Um, There's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, as the scripture teaches us. However, in light of that, those strong disagreements we would hold with those who are Roman Catholics, what can we as evangelical Christians learn from Rome? Can we learn anything from Rome? And from our Roman Catholic friends, and I think the answer is yes. We can not only learn from them and appreciate some of the things that they've done, we also must be challenged by them on some things as well. And there's four main areas I want to bring up today. This is more in the realm of, uh, you know, co-belligerency as opposed to partnering with someone who we think is a a Christian and has the same view of the gospel. So view this as um, walking alongside someone who's a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, uh, maybe even a family member. 
and pushing back against some of the darkness. Um, and certainly this does not apply equally to every single Roman Catholic individual. I'm thinking here about some who are from the best of the tradition. And there's four, a few main areas I want to bring up today. The first is specific thinkers, specific Roman Catholic thinkers who we as uh, Bible-believing historic Christians, biblical Christians, want to learn from and can appreciate and value and should uh, learn from and listen from and appreciate and value. And uh, so many come to mind. Um, one uh, is perhaps Gregory the Great. He wrote a great little treatise on pastoral care that I know another number of Protestants have recommended. And there's just some uh, some uh, you know really helpful principles in terms of walking alongside people, in terms of uh, how pastors ought to care for the flock and shepherd the flock of God. And I do think that sometimes um, Protestants can lose sight of the fact that there are some great works written by some men who, yes, have massive inconsistencies and flaws. And uh, uh, there was an article a few years back by a guy, uh, Ray Van Nest. He's a he's a evangelical Protestant, but he wrote a good article on how when he teaches his pastoral ministry class, he he requires his students to read Gregory the Great's Pastoral Care. I uh, read that uh, book years ago and um, actually walked through a evangelical Protestant Sunday school class, uh, that book with them, just to help them uh, highlight some of these things. And here, here's the thing that's interesting about um, Gregory the Great. John Calvin, and this is from the Ray Van Nest uh, article, but he actually uh, quoted... Um, he called Gregory the last good pope. Very interesting. Um, and uh, he also noted, Van Ness, that is, that uh, Calvin said that uh, Gregory the Great is the, or he found that he's the second most cited patristic source in the institutes of uh, John Calvin's famous institutes of the biblical religion. So Calvin had a high esteem for this um, uh, Gregory the Great, but Protestants down through the ages have. And again, I'm not endorsing all of Gregory the Great's lines or comments, this kind of thing, not by a long shot, but when it comes to his work on uh, pastoral theology, what can we appreciate? Well, um, uh, Van Nest again goes through and highlights many things, the gravity of the pastoral role. In a day and age when there's so many skinny jean-wearing, you know, latte-sipping um, evangelical pastors that really mock the pastorate, that kind of wear these Hawaiian shirts and get up there and like, how y'all doing this kind of a thing? It's painful um, to listen to this kind of a thing. Gregory really highlights how this is a, a burden. That's the language he uses in there. This is a burden. This is a task that ought to be treated with the utmost uh, seriousness, the weight of pastoral ministry, shepherding the flock of God as an under-shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you do this for a season. You recognize your own sinfulness and the evil in your own heart. And uh, he has a number of quotes in there. Um, one of which is very interesting, quote, For no one does more harm in the church than he who, having the title or rank of holiness, acts evilly, close quote. And and Gregory's right. I mean, you look at the abuse of so many ministers, self-professing, some of them, ministers of the gospel over the years. It's very sad and horrific to, to hear this. But he also gets after the idea that pastors are physicians of the heart. Beautiful reminder of kind of the work of ministry and the need to carefully feed the flock of God uh, with the truth of uh, the scriptures. And he actually highlights that as well, the duty of the pastor to meditate on and uh, focus on the sacred word of God. And again, in a day of amusement, in a day of, you know, these, we're going to have a pastor coming in on a motorcycle and, you know, <laughs> I just listened to this horrific 
um, de- departure talk of this one uh, quote unquote pastor. He he mocks the Protestant tradition. He mocks Christianity, but he talked about how yeah, it was great. I had Coldplay playing in in the church service. These kinds of things. It's just it's painful. There's no respect and reverence for this office, and it's not done according to the word. So Gregory the Great. Uh, that's one of the first ones I want to highlight, and there's more I could say about him, but his work on pastoral ministry, I, w- I wish every pastor, every evangelical pastor would read his um, his work on pastoral practice. He has an utmost seriousness for that task and for that role, and uh, has some very good things of just encouraging people towards, uh, men that is, towards this this vital task. Another specific thinker that um, is one that I have learned from and found uh, tremendously helpful over the years Um uh, has been, and I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but Alphonsus Liori. Uh, he wrote some stuff on moral theology, and I'm actually only recently getting into his work, but um, Nick Needham in his 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, the, the most recent volume, actually highlights a number of, um, and Nick Needham's a Reformed Baptist um, minister in the UK, but he um, he highlights some of these choice quotes from uh, from Liguori and this uh, this moral theology, and some of that is very thoughtful, very important for us to think through. He was probably one of the most important thinkers in the 17th, 18th century there um, concerning moral theology, and it really shaped uh, the Roman Catholic tradition and really makes you think concerning the gravity of the way we think about and approach theology and, and morality. There are other uh, Jansenists, um, if you know church history, that, that might be familiar, but they were those who were trying to think through the relationship between free will and divine sovereignty. And they wrote some things that were very helpful tracts and treatises. And they really pushed back against some of this um, man-centered. Uh, you actually have even what uh, my former church history professor and um, faculty mentor, John Woodbridge, Dr. John Woodbridge at Trinity, called um, uh, the the early seeds of provenient grace. So our friends who are Arminian Protestants talk about provenient grace, right? This grace that responds first in the life of someone before they then respond. Now, we would say as Reformed uh, men that that's inadequate, that, that more needs to be said, but certainly not less needs to be said. There's something of the work of God, the grace of God, prior to the reception or the response of an individual. We would say there's more there when it comes to sovereignty, election, choice, but we wouldn't say less than that probably. And provenient grace is also found in the in the work of Calvin. Obviously, he defines it a little differently than some, but these Jansenists really do have uh, some good things to say, some helpful thought on uh, pushing back against a really man-centered view of, um, uh, of conversion, of salvation. And so the Jansenists are a whole school of thought that are interesting and helpful, and we can learn from them. Of course, some of the more modern ones, or recent ones, G.K. Chesterton, he wrote on a variety of cultural topics. His work on orthodoxy and, and a number of other topics are uh, extremely helpful uh, to this day. I think that, again, while Chesterton had a, uh, a special, maybe, uh, Hatred, you might say, uh, towards Calvinism, and even had some quotes that that came out as such. Chesterton is a uh, one of these thinkers, one of these guys who has these pithy lines that uh, even if you are uh, obviously strenuously against the Roman Catholic tradition, you can uh, be blessed by him and appreciate his pushing back against some of this um, this liberalism, this this secularism, this humanism that uh, clearly is inconsistent, clearly is a joke, and uh, his book on on uh, uh, orthodoxy, heretics, these these things are excellent. The one that I read a few years ago that really sticks with me that I would recommend maybe to all the listeners if they wanted to check it out is What's Wrong with the World? Um, that one by Chesterton is phenomenal. Uh, he just uh, talks about, you know, some of these things. And one of the quotes that I found so funny was, uh, I maintain, therefore, that the common sociological method is quite useless. 
uh, that of first dissecting abject poverty or cataloging prostitution. We all dislike abject poverty, but it might be another business if we began to discuss independent and dignified poverty. He goes through and just talks about how secularism is completely um, uh, impoverished in terms of discussing the big problems we find in the world. There's no categories that secularism, humanism has to discuss things that are these massive problems. Because why? Well, they're spiritual at root. They're spiritual at their core. And they get at a flawed view of biblical, I'm sorry, a flawed view of anthropology. That is the doctrine of man. They don't have a good grasp on who man is um, and uh, and how men can overcome some of these problems that we've been faced with. So Chesterton, incredible thinker. I think, again, we'd strongly disagree with his pushback on um, uh, Calvinism and his caricatures there. Another one is J.R. Tolkien. Oh, you uh, Calvin, brother? Yeah. Yeah, you just introduced J.R. Tolkien. I yes. probably interrupted you, but no, you're you know, good. The, you're good. The things that come to my mind, well, uh, leaving Chesterton with his uh, literary genius, you could say, yes. moving on to uh, Tolkien and his literary genius, it, it reminds me of the increasing ugliness that yes. we find yes. uh, reflected in the arts. Um, Including literature. Yeah. And so, um, you know, whatever you say about Tolkien, I'm not a Tolkien scholar, but a fan of some of his work yeah. that I know yeah. of. And it definitely draws you uh, from this world. It, it kind of um, focuses on the beauty of created natural order yeah. and also the tragedy of its fallenness. Yeah. But... It doesn't leave you there. Yeah. It transports you, you know, beyond to a, to a, maybe a, you could say a a redeemed um, expression of of what was created. But um, definitely um, tell us more about that. Well, the, the categories you just mentioned, the good, the true, the beautiful, these kind of historic, um, uh, categories that arise out of a good, healthy, classical education, that again, Roman Catholic friends and Protestant friends who are interested in recovering some of that and see the demise of and the mocking and the blaspheming that comes out of so much secular humanistic uh, art, and you can't even call it that, but it, it degrades humanity. It degrades uh, what God considers um, sacred and good and wonderful. And uh, yeah, a lot of it does flow from the. Uh, theology, the beliefs of um, individuals, of, of societies, of nations, of, of collections of people. And Chesterton, and, and, and he saw this, I mean, I can't imagine if Chesterton was alive today what he would say. I mean, some of the things that would come out of his pen, who knows. But he, he, he found um, that there were so many who had a sh- such a shallow view of what it meant to um, not only... Uh, live a virtuous life and uh, promote the good, the true, and beautiful. But he he despised this kind of mockery of uh, those who would promote things with a shallow, uh, flawed view of things. And and he again did that in a witty manner. But uh, he often though pushed back against the idea that duty is um, is something that is less than. Uh, man's highest self-fulfillment, this kind of self-actualization that is that drives so much humanism. The idea that whatever expression comes out of my heart must be validated, must be good, must be affirmed, that, that we see all around us today, right? And that requires 
Kevin DeYoung recently to write a book, right? Call called do, do Not Follow Your Heart, right? Do Not Follow Your Heart. And uh, that's just a recent book that he came out with. And it's like we see this pastoral crisis around us in the church of so many people following their heart to their own demise, to their own harm, and thinking that's going to be the way to live. And, and there's no sense of like duty, responsibility, a sense of obligation. I'm under the authority of another and that authority is a good thing when, again, used properly. And, and so I think Chesterton and that ordered society and these kinds of things in the world we live in, he pushed back against what was a, probably the seeds of an early pragmatism, this practical man he spoke of in the, what's wrong with the world, that people wanted a practical man who could just solve problems but not have any of the, the good, the true, the beautiful talk in the language that actually made us feel intimidated or smaller or transcend us. And I think that what Chesterton does so well is he brings us back into the transcendent and he says you cannot ignore um, the transcendent. Um, you cannot ignore this uh, image of God um, that you clearly are marked by. And uh, it's it's um, it's ha- it haunts you, and, and he and others have picked up on this language of this haunting um, that we that we have, um, including the the, mo- the more recent uh, Romanists, well, uh, Charles Taylor, contemporary of our day, in his book, uh, the massive book, The Secular Age, a very popular book in some ways, um, and uh, an important book because he too gets after some of this language of the transcendent and how we've been swallowed up by this kind of uh, narcissism in our day. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, Chesterton, but also even Tolkien, what, what uh, these Romanist friends uh, have going for them is that, again, there is this, like you mentioned, pulling us out of our own little bubbles and worlds and our own self-fulfillment of what do I desire to this larger picture story, this larger narrative of your life overlaps with other people who you have obligations to. And uh, we know as biblical Christians, that God is sovereign over that. We didn't choose when we were going to be born. We didn't choose who we were going to have in our life, our family, our, our you know, the, the mother, father we were born into, the health that we have, all these things that God in his sovereignty placed us with and gave to us, all the gifts we given, the financial, you know, whatever you want to call it, social class, these kinds of things, um, the, the, the accidents that would happen in our lives that would affect our ability to see and walk and move and, and be paralyzed, whatever else. So many things happen in our lives outside of our control that are in the divine orchestration of God. And uh, we see from, just to use an example, Tolkien, um, what he does, what so many people have appreciated in Lord of the Rings and Slimmerillion and all these other books that he's written over the years, that is, it brings us into a world where there is a clashing of good and evil. There's, there's, there's real good, there's real evil, but there's also a journey. There's also a sense in which there's camaraderie, there's friendship, there's loyalty. Um, and then there's even the test of betrayal and, uh, and the temptation of betrayal even. And so what I think those authors capture so uh, well is that you are not in this story on your own, able to do whatever you want to do and Today, the gurus and the self-help people all around us, and even those who are like on the bestseller list of the New York Times, by and large, it's not these um, these writers who are uh, pulling us out of our own little worlds and pushing us into the transcendent. It is pragmatic. It is, we'll do this little technique, and you'll um, eat better in this way, and three techniques to a better this or that, and financial success, you're a millionaire by 40. You know, we want these like little simple things, but there are values that we have to recognize transcend us and we need to have rooted in kind of this this natural law and the way the world works that we can't ignore um other thinkers some of the other ones would be um uh jay richards he's a contemporary as well he pushed back hard against some of the covid stuff he wrote um uh, a great book with i'm not sure if the other guy's a roman catholic but um 
their book, uh, Richards, and who was the other guy? Uh, there's two other gentlemen, actually, who wrote this um, book. The name, uh, The Great uh, Panic. I'm going to try to get it right here. I'm going to try. I'll look it up. I haven't. Um, but Jay Richards wrote this book with two other uh, scientists, brilliant men, um, push, pushing back against the COVID uh, narrative. And it was it was helpful. It was timely. Again, it didn't get a lot of traction because a lot of people. The the price of panic was the name of it. Sorry about that. The price of panic. And and these men, the other two were Douglas Axe and uh, William Briggs. They basically in this book, uh, the subtitle is "How the Tyranny of Experts Turned to Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe." They were honest about models and masks and mandates. They were honest about um, the tyrants. And uh, it's what they uncovered in there is is fascinating. It's also disturbing uh, because, you know, they, they talked about how lockdowns and the, <laughs> the foolish thing that just imploded our economy. Um, it basically came out of this model uh, that a scientist's daughter did at a science fair project. They uncovered this. And it's just crazy when you, when you look at the research that they did and they uncovered it's horrific how unscientific and how foolish it was. But Jay Richards has written other stuff on many other top, uh, topics. Years ago with uh, Guillermo Gonzalez, a, a guy at Iowa State University, they wrote a book called The Privileged Planet. It's an amazing book about the design of the universe, intelligent design. If you're not convinced that this world is designed, read Guillermo Gonzalez and uh, Jay Richards' book, Privileged Planet. I mean, you will that will blow up any kind of sense of we don't live in a place that's amazing and mysterious and designed and ordered. Just to go back uh, briefly to the yeah, example, absolutely. contemporary example of uh, the COVID response, yes, yes. there's definitely a tradition of moral theology from the Catholic Church yes. that is at least, I mean, I don't know how you could objectively deny the deeper uh, thinking oh. that has taken place over you know, a millennia oh, on moral theology. Versus when the crisis struck us, and it wasn't the healthcare crisis, it was yes. the response, there was an absence of a Protestant or evangelical uh, moral theology response. It was basically go along to get along. And yes. churches, by, by and large, they participated in contact tracing and enforcement of this and closing down oh, their, yeah. their, their doors, etc. And there were many, and, you know, we have to say there were many um, archdiocese that throughout the country, not, not all, but some that kind of came out in favor of those that uh, sought exemptions. Yes. Uh, not all, but uh, some um, archbishops decided that, hey, we need to uh, stand in the gap yes. for certain, for our parishioners and um, do this for them. And they came out with statements that um, expressed their moral theology mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that explained it and defended it on uh, moral grounds, moral yes. reasoning. And so, you know, obviously that has to be said. And, and it's a great shame that more Protestant and evangelicals were on the wrong side of the truth. Oh, 100%. 100%. You're exactly right on this. And I, I am thankful to God for those who did stand up and push back against some of the, the tyranny concerning COVID. I understand there was a lot of reactions and and whatnot. But I do think, you know, and... and and we'll get into this later uh, a little bit here, but 
that's true not only of COVID, but there's a long history there of reflection on natural law. And um, you think back to uh, its its connection as well to um, sexuality and some of the things that have come out of there. They have done some good thinking, not on every area, but on, on a number of areas. Tim Bailey years ago said that, that in many ways, evangelicals have this stunted, shallow view of uh, theological reflection and need to catch up in some ways to the Roman Catholic tradition on this because it, it is good and right and true to appeal to the scriptures, to know the scriptures, to love the scriptures. But the scriptures do need to be applied. The scriptures need to be applied and there are new challenges the church faces and needs to respond to. And you can't just say uh, Mark 7 verse whatever. You need to sit, you, you can't do less than that. You can't do less than say Mark 7 verse 24 or whatever says this or Jesus says in Matthew 19 this concerning this. But you also have to say, so, so what? And apply it. And you actually have to think through that hard and reflect on it. And uh, so I do think that the best of Roman Catholic tradition, the best of Roman Catholic friends and thinkers on some of those matters can serve as um, a healthy and a good model for thinking hard on some of those matters of sexuality in general. I'm not talking about those who are like apostate, who are, you know, promoting all this nonsense today, but but some certainly, and even, even contemporary, you have Robert George, political philosophy, these kinds of things. He's endorsed a number of good books by Protestants in recent years, including Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, and he's a political philosopher at, uh, at Princeton, um, Roman Catholic guy, and evangelicals just wrote a big contribution or uh, tome to him concerning an appreciation for his work. I don't know if you saw that came through, maybe Crossway or something. So, um, uh, yeah. Before we move on to the second area where yeah. we could find a common ground with our Romanist and Papist yeah. friends, yeah. Uh, I say that affectionately. Yeah, of um, course, yeah. I have to mention um, the first area, obviously, is the specific thinkers that we've been talking about. Yes. But the dumb ox in the room is Thomas Aquinas. Oh, yes. I say dumb ox affectionately as well, so nobody exactly, exactly. get offended. Um, he obviously wrote <clears throat> tomes and tomes and system yes. of theology that also, like you said, applied his theology from his perspective um, to moral issues. Um, any just brief thoughts on Thomas Aquinas? Well, I do think that this is a topic that's received a lot of attention in recent years. Obviously, not being a Thomas scholar, I'm not going um, uh, to try to try to go beyond um, what my uh, expertise or knowledge would be. You can read some things in Aquinas that you would say yes and amen to. This is my my general take on Aquinas. There are some wonderful things, some pithy things, some thoughtful things in his work. He was a dominant theologian in the life of the church. Um, and yet, and yet, with that said, um, I think there are other some uh, other things that very clearly raise red flags concerning his understanding of salvation, the gospel, justification. I mean, he says other things concerning double predestination, and he's almost more... I heard one, uh, uh, I think he was at Reformed Theological Seminary, say something like, you know, Thomas Aquinas was more of a predestinarian than John Calvin was. You know, you're like, <laughs> you might not know that, but <laughs> he had no qualms with double predestination uh, at all. And um, I think that, though, you do see many who get caught up, and this happened years ago at Southern Seminary, where a number of evangelicals at the time got caught up in, um, they got caught up in this, this, how do I say it? 
they were fascinated by Aquinas, and it it really did push them into the boat that got them across the Tiber, and they eventually converted to a number of them to Roman Catholicism. And I think that was unwarranted, and I think that was obviously foolish and reckless. Um, Ezra Press, uh, Ezra Institute, you know, they're up in Canada. They have another location down here. Dr. Joe Boot and others have um, uh, been involved with their work. He's, but they wrote a Thomas Aquinas and the uh, Neo-Thomist tradition. It's a, a Christian philosophical assessment, and it's 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 good. Essentially, what they're arguing for in there is maybe in line with what Jeffrey Johnson and James White and others are pushing back against. That we we have to with Aquinas be very very careful. I would say my my own posture is I want to take in the meat, spit out the bones, but I think there's a lot of bones. <laughs> I think there's a lot of bones, and I think that Matthew Barrett and other of these guys, you know, he's a Midwestern, and others who have this kind of high view of uh, Aquinas and recovering the great tradition, and they speak a lot about these categories as if they're you know uniform and as if they're easily understood and taken down. I think that they probably give too much. Uh, liberty and thinking we can just go and study Aquinas and 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 think that he's like in our camp on our team these kinds of things. I know others have written like stuff on trying to ex- like Aquinas, you know, uh, the Protestant these kinds of things almost. And I don't think that's warranted. I don't think that's right. I think when you listen to some of the when you read him and when you listen to some of the quotes that James White's done on the dividing line, I think that you see very clearly that this is why an evangelical Bible-believing historic Christian would have issues with Aquinas and where Aquinas is maybe operating out of tradition, has a higher allegiance than he should to tradition, and it diminishes Scripture, it diminishes Christ alone. And uh, and I would say, yeah, we can learn from him, but we need to be cautious. And I, I think that um, if you're going to act like Aquinas, there's nothing wrong with Aquinas, I'm just going to call myself this like, you know, uh, classical Protestant, right? And try to act like, you know, I'm part of this tradition and these other guys are just like neo-reformed who are rejecting the tradition. I, I disagree with that. And I know that others would say, well, Richard Moeller, this kind of a thing. And I get that. But I, I, I think when you read him, when you read his work, Aquinas, just don't, you know, push away the Jeffrey Johnsons, push away the Matthew Barrett's, read Aquinas. I think you will come away saying exactly what I said, yes and amen, <laughs> and this is not some novel thing. I think a lot of guys would say this, and you come away saying, what? Scratching your head and even saying that's downright wrong, if not borderline heretical and foolish and reckless with the scriptures and not faithful to the scriptures. So that's my general take on uh, not being a Thomas, Thomas scholar, but wanting to say, think you'd learn from him, but you should do so cautiously. I don't think he deserves the position of high allegiance that many give him. But uh, again, um, I think he can be learned from. Well, that gives me second thoughts on gifting you my hand-drawn uh, portrait of Aquinas <laughs> wearing a Kansas City Chiefs jersey with 88 on it. Uh, 88 because uh, we could agree with 88% of Thomas Aquinas I've heard. So um, we'll move on from that. But I wanted to give his uh, uh, mention, you know, due uh, respect. No, absolutely. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. that. That's worthy of a episode on its own. That's worthy of a whole episode in itself. But definitely do check out Thomas Aquinas and the Neo-Thomas, or Thomas, excuse me, tradition by, it's a Christian philosophical assessment. And... Um, it's by uh, Bernie Vanderwalt, and uh, I think it's a longer book, but I think it's something worth exploring, um, critiquing him, modifying things, these kinds of things, and understanding how we should adopt him or not. 
Let's move on to the second uh, area of common ground. Absolutely. Before we do, could I just mention two other authors? Sure, And sure. I'll just mention them and throw them out there. Peter Kreft, Kreft is one. He's a philosopher at Boston, uh, Boston College, I believe. And then uh, it might be retired now, but R.R. Reno. Both those guys, I read, he's the editor of First Things. I think both those guys are contemporaries who have written some good stuff. Kreft is a guy who wrote this great book called Between Two Worlds. And it was this... It was a very genius idea. It was a conversation, or between heaven and hell, I think it's called between heaven and hell. And basically, it was a it was a conversation between um, C.S. Lewis, Otis Huxley, the, the humanist guy, and um, also um, J.F.K. John F. Kennedy. Brilliant book, wonderful, and just kind of like he actually made J.F.K. out to be the dolt kind of a thing. Ironically, even though he's Roman Catholic, but it's a very brilliant idea. It's very informative book. I read it probably 15 years ago, but Kreft is a very thoughtful guy. And R.R. Uh, R. Reno, the editor of First Things, I, I read almost every article he writes. I think he's a very thoughtful guy. And he wrote a recent book called The Return of the Strong Gods on, on nationalism, these kinds of things. And I think he's always worth considering. I don't agree with everything, of course, that Reno says by a long shot, but I do think he's a very thoughtful guy we should, as Protestants, contend with, think through. And so those are just a few of the guys that I appreciate, specific guys. I'm sure there's many more I've forgotten. But yeah, the second, the second area then, we can learn from and appreciate from our Romanist friends. Um, along with specific thinkers, there's the matter of, of gender, sexuality, and marriage. So again, I mentioned the name Tim Bailey. Tim Bailey's a uh, Protestant pastor in uh, Bloomington. And he was the guy who first uh, got me onto this and, and maybe really stopped my tracks on this. He said that Protestants need to have a longer tradition of meditating on and applying, uh, of applied theology, applying biblical theology, and not just citing book, chapter, and verse. Again, that's necessary. That's vital. You should not do less than that, but you need to do more than that. And I think that Romanist friends, Roman Catholic friends, the Roman Catholic tradition also has a long history of doing this. Now, I am not at all defending the forced celibacy of the priesthood. When I talk about their reflections on gender, sexuality, and marriage, that to me is abominable. That is wrong. That's led to a lot of sodomy and wickedness and promotion of evil because these men are not called to be celibate if they don't have the gift of celibacy, and very few are. However, when it comes to gender and sexuality, when it comes to thinking through even the category that many uh, Romanists have picked up on, disordered desire, right, of, of sodomy, of homosexuality, it's a disordered desire. Even that phrase, even the language there, and some of the language of the encyclicals that have been handed down concerning how do we think through the relationship between desire and who we are as human beings? How do we think through um, repentance? And again, we'd have a different view of repentance and what, what it looks like for um, uh, according to the scriptures. But, but I think that Roman Catholic friends think long and hard on the relationship to the body and to the soul. And I think there's some things worth reading, worth considering, consulting. If I had to, again, direct you to one, uh, man, that's that's tough to narrow it down to one encyclical or one. You should read this or that, plus many of them are in Latin. But um, there may be uh, a handful of treatises you could consult on sexuality, on gender, on um, some of these relationships between the body and the soul. Maybe I'll just say in general, not this current pope. But um, the previous pope and two popes ago, read some of their work, Ratzinger and, and some of these other ones, on uh, sexuality, on gender, because I do think they do some good work in applying the theology there. So that's what I'll say for gender, sexuality, and marriage. Again, I think that when it comes to marriage, what can we learn from them? Well, we don't view it as a sacrament. They view marriage as a sacrament. But I would say this. We need to absolutely recover a higher view of marriage in the evangelical tradition and the Christian tradition because 
we have such a diminished, shallow view of marriage. Divorce is rampant. No-fault divorce is everywhere. I know that the divorce rate is significantly less, praise God, in committed evangelicals who pray together relationships. Like, it's not 50% like the rest of the, the culture. And that, that 50% number is actually a myth, too, because it's 50% of all marriages end in divorce, but that also takes into consideration second and third marriages. So, and those end in divorce many more times than first marriages. But um, our Roman Catholic friends, while they wrongly elevate it to be the sacrament, they do take it very, very seriously. The oath, the commitment, the vow. And again, I know there's many Roman Catholics who just do it because they're part of the tradition. They are just as guilty of committing adultery and, and pursue divorce, even though it's unwarranted. But evangelicals need to realize that in Ephesians 5 in the scriptures, we have a picture of Christ in the church. And if you diminish that, if you don't take seriously the gift of marriage, the nature of marriage, the the way that, as one guy put it, a small civilization forms out of marriage. And when divorce takes place, um, guess what? Uh, one sociologist put it this way, and I heard Al Mohler say this years ago, but it's the death of a small civilization. When, when, a, when a couple gets divorced, it is nothing less than a death of a small civilization, that basic building block uh, there. So we don't need to elevate it to a sacrament. We shouldn't do that. But we should say, yes, there needs to be a serious time of pre premarital counseling. There needs to be a time of prayer, a time of fasting, a time of approaching the Lord according to the scriptures and saying, I'm about to enter into this, and uh, a real approach to marriage, gender, uh, and sexuality that is taken with the utmost seriousness. Our bodies matter to God. They're not evil. They're not bad. And so even the understanding of creation is not evil. I think some Gnosticism has seeped into evangelical thought that says, like, the body's bad, these kinds of things. And again, I don't want to go so far as to say everything in purity culture was wrong. But I do think that the old joke about the old quip about how, you know, the only thing I learned in my evangelical youth pastor was um, uh, was that marriage is dirty, sex, and wrong, and I should save it for the one I love the most. You know, that's the <laughs> that's the thing that you've heard is like, uh, sex is dirty, gross, and wrong, and I should save it for the one I love the most. That sometimes is the extent to which people are trained in understanding sexuality, uh, gender, and marriage, and it's it's not right. We need to do applied theology better according to the scriptures in light of that and many roman catholic friends have done that and we have a lot to learn from them in that category um a third category uh that we can learn from our roman catholic friends is this is birth control it's related to this this other one of marriage uh, gender and sexuality but birth control is very interesting my ethics bowl uh coach that we were on this ethics bowl thing in college where my undergrad we basically go and debate um, other schools on matters of ethics, on matters of morality, right? So you debate, you have a topic, and then you have to defend a side against the other uh, school. So you'd be given a side and you'd debate other schools. We debated secular schools, all this kind of a thing. And so I did ethics bowl when I was in um, undergrad. And a philosophy professor who led this, Dr. James Spiegel, he's now at Hillsdale College. But for a long time, he was at Taylor University. And Dr. James Spiegel one time called birth control in a conversation with me. He's like, I view it as like the bikini. And I was like, what? It's like the bikini. And he said, yeah, evangelical Christians were once really against it. And they said, we can't do that. It's basically walking around in your underwear. Why would we do that? It's, you know, it's, it's scandalous. It's showing off too much body, this kind of a thing. It's, it's not right. But then one day we just accepted the bikini. Oh, it's fine. Christian liberty. Do what you want. Everyone can wear a bikini. There's nothing wrong with it. He's like, birth control is similar to that in that. We were against it. We were we were like, no, we can't do this. And then all of a sudden we were like, ah, it's fine. So the historic Christian view has been the birth control is 
not only morable, uh, morally problematic, but it's actually not permitted. It's it's impermissible. Why? Well, because it cuts off what God has naturally paired together, namely sexual sexual relationships in the confines of covenant marriage and procreation. It cuts off what God has brought together. So, in other words, uh, let no man um, divide what God has brought together. You know what I mean? To play uh, off of the language of the, of the marriage covenant, you know. But we understand that God has connected these things. And when you think about birth control and the effect and the toll it's taken, not only on women's bodies, in some cases, sadly, tragically preventing them from having children because the way it tampers with their cycles, these kinds of things, and tragically, they cannot have kids, but also the problematic nature of of women being told to lie and men being told to lie of you have to be a certain income bracket. You have to achieve a certain level of debt freeness before you can have your kids or it should just be the two of you, right? For this season of life. Don't worry about kids till later. Um, I think a lot of evangelicals just kind of bought into that hook, line and sinker went along with it. It's a matter of Christian Liberty. This is between you and your spouse and so on and so forth. And so I would not be prepared to argue today the birth control in every single form is sinful and wrong and wicked. But I would say that in many cases it is. And I would also say this, that it's much more morally problematic than most evangelical Protestants think that it is. And we need to do much more hard thinking on this. And our Roman Catholic friends have done this. And years ago, I forget who it was, but one Roman Catholic pope or bishop or cardinal basically said, <clears throat> the floodgates will open if we allow birth control. And it will lead to um, the culture of death. And that brings us to the fourth thing that we can appreciate about our Roman Catholic friends, and that is um, our Roman Catholic friends, particularly here in the United States, pushing back early on against the culture of death, the culture of pre-born baby murder, state-sanctioned pre-born baby murder, tax-funded, in some cases, uh, pre-born baby murder that we have now exported, sadly, across the nations to the rest of the world. And uh, that is a stain on the legacy of our country here and the legacy of many Christians here, many Roman Catholic friends much more early than Protestant um, counterparts push back against the culture of death. One, excuse me, one Roman Catholic historian, actually I don't think he's a Roman Catholic, but he's a historian, Daniel Williams, the University of West Georgia. I don't think he's a Christian at all, but he noted in his history of the pro-life cause in the United States here, he said this, quote, evangelical Protestants had previously stayed on the sidelines of the debate. And so in 1973, when Roe v. Wade was codified and Doe v. Bolton was codified into law by this judicial fiat, right, this this wicked, irrational, foolish decision that basically said um, abortion uh, from the point of conception all the way up to birth, that's what it was, that's what it did defend, uh, defended and, and supported, is now supported by law. Women can do this. And it was built on terrible premises and, and, and just on and on. We could talk about how logically absurd and insane it was and the carnage that it has caused since then. But Roman Catholic friends, uh, reflecting on tradition, perhaps even knowing tradition better than some of their evangelical counterparts, recognized early on this was wrong, this was wicked, this was sinful. And they appealed to things like the uh, Didache or the Didache. And you have language in there very clearly in the second century document that says abortion is murder. It links this to murder. And that was really a reflection that came out of a biblical reflection, knowing what the scriptures teach concerning thou shalt not murder, knowing what the scripture teaches in Exodus and in other passages concerning the sanctions for those who would cause a preborn child to be murdered. And when you think about the consistent witness and testimony of the word of God in the Old and New Testaments, the written word, you had there not only um, these uh, figures in the Old Testament, David referring to himself as being 
in the womb, and Jeremiah, and Job, and Jeremiah. But you also have our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, very clearly referenced as a brephos in the New Testament, as a child. And that word child is used both for a child in the womb and outside the womb. And this is really just the logical you know, continuation of what the Hebrew people, uh, the Jewish people have believed according to their scriptures. We actually, as Christians, learn that from the people of God in some ways, those those Jewish people. They always had viewed, I should say the Orthodox one, had always viewed abortion to be wicked. Why? Because God is the one who is sovereign over conception. And so this is just reflection on tradition rooted in and grounded in the scriptures that Roman Catholic friends knew and knew better than evangelicals. Evangelicals were kind of caught off guard. What do we believe about ensoulment? What do we believe about when life begins? Bada, bada, bada. Well, Augustine maybe said this about ensoulment. We were thrown off by all these things. And even some evangelicals, sadly, were saying, well, up till the first few weeks or whatever, it's fine because da 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 it hasn't been formed. They were saying foolish things like that, even like evangelicals were. Now, I would say more quickly than most give credit to, Protestants were convicted and did move on this and actually repented and changed their minds. But we can thank God for the fact that Roman Catholic friends, not all of them, sadly you still have some who are calling themselves Roman Catholics who are defending this barbaric, wicked practice. Um, and sadly, some Roman Catholic friends too lumped together their defense of life for this like pro-life, consistent pro-life ethic. And they start to think foolishly on things like, and evangelicals do this too, but they start to say, we want to be consistently pro-life. And they start to say, that means we're against the death penalty and we're against climate change and we're against um, war and we're against, you know, so on and so weapons, right? Against the Second Amendment. because Raise the minimum wage. Raise the minimum wage, <laughs> right, against this stuff. And you're like, no, 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 pro-life has a meaning. And it means that you believe that uh, pre-born life of uh, little boys and girls in the womb, the most smallest vul- vulnerable among us, they are they are children, and they are the same person they'll be ten years from now. They are in the womb. They're going to grow and change and develop. Yes, but they're they're worthy of protection and dignity. We cannot just destroy them. And uh, and, and so praise be to God that there's many who are pushing back against the culture of death. But evangelicals were not there from the beginning uh, in many ways on this. And our Roman Catholic friends, at least my understanding is that many of them were. And evangelicals had a lot to learn from them. And even to this day, if uh, I was just outside of a Abortion clinic the other week with a, a good uh, brother in Christ, Juan Riesco. He, he runs this ministry, Love Life, in the largest abortion clinic outside uh, or in Chicago. There's like four. He said they do 40 abortions. It's terrific an hour, um, if not more. He's like on an average. So it's this gigantic um, abortion clinic right there off Washington Boulevard. And uh, he has great ministry uh, to sharing the gospel. These women, please, will cho- choose life, will adopt. We, we love you. Shares the gospel with these women and these, uh, their husbands or boyfriends or whoever else who are encouraging them in that direction. Um, but we talked about, and one thing that came up is, when you go to these abortion clinics, you'll often see many Roman Catholic friends. Now, I would tell you the method by which they are seeking to overcome that is impotent. They're not doing a lot of gospel preaching. And this obviously is something that is going to be only, only overcome with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I praise God for the fact that they are trying to stand in the gap. They are trying to promote life and adoption and these kinds of things. And, and praise God for that, these co-belligerents that we can uh, thank God for. And even as we share the gospel with them and look them in the eyes and say, we want you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. You need a mediator. There's only one mediator, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so we can thank God for Roman Catholic friends and thinkers, specific ones who I mentioned, we can thank God for <clears throat> their views on a longstanding view on natural law when it comes to gender, sexuality, and applied theology uh, uh, on, on matters that are important concerning the human body and, and our souls and the connection there. And we can thank God for their um, calling out birth control and the problematic nature of birth control, the morally 
um, uh, really charged issue that it is, but also the issue that uh, it's a matter of ethics. It's a matter of honoring God, the creator, who's the one who opens and closes the womb. And uh, also we can praise God for the fact they push back on the culture of death. Those are those are just four main issues um, that I would say we can thank God for and have this co-belligerency with these Roman Catholic friends on. But again, that would not diminish in any way that we think we have a different understanding of the gospel, a different ultimate authority, and that the scriptures are supreme. And uh, we want them to treasure Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We don't want them to have that same veneration for Mary or uh, praying to any of the saints. None of this. Only pray to the Father and the Son by the Spirit. Um, absolutely. And repent of any of that other stuff. But um, uh, praise God for the fact that these friends are pushing back against that. And we have that commonality and common ground. And I will say this, too, that with Roman Catholics, I heard John MacArthur say this years ago, and I think he's spot on. We can actually have very meaningful, spiritually significant conversations with Roman Catholic friends because they're open to talking about these things and they actually believe what they believe. The ones who actually are trying to be consistent and trying to be, uh, uh, you know, as, as faithful as they can. One guy I met a, f- a few years ago outside of an abortion clinic in Wooddale said, um, just so you know, you Protestant, I don't think you're separated brethren. I don't think that. I think uh, you're a heretic. And I was like, I appreciate the, uh, the honesty there. Um, uh, a few hours later. Uh, I going up to the same guy, this Roman Catholic, who said, I'm a pre-Vatican II uh, Roman Catholic, you know, <laughs> this kind of a thing. And he said to me, um, I heard more Bible and preaching than I heard in 40 years in my Roman Catholic parish from you here today. It was a very telling remark, very interesting. So again, I grieve over the fact that there are still um, the, these places that call themselves Christian, want to be a part of the Christian tradition where they have muted the word of God. They're not preaching and teaching consistently from the scriptures. They have these appeals to authority and tradition that go well beyond the scriptures and are wrong. Um, but I do thank God that we have this co-belligerency. That guy is very committed to standing outside there and to uh, pleading and saying, you know, he, he doesn't do a lot of preaching, doesn't do any preaching, but he will say, please don't do this, please don't do this. That's what he'll say. Now, he doesn't have a gospel to give them, which shows the differences right there in terms of how we overcome these things uh, because they're a spiritual crisis. But praise God for the fact that he's out there. And frankly, he will do, as someone put, he will do for a lie um, uh, more for the cause of the pre-born than many evangelical Christians will do for the truth. And so that should be humbling to us and, and really encourage us to get out there and say, we have the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation. We have this good news that is for sinners uh, to turn and trust in Jesus Christ, to find in him uh, perfect mediation between us and the Father, and to know that uh, we have life in Christ and that in Christ there is full forgiveness and complete reconciliation with God and the assurance of our salvation, not because we are good, but because God is good, and by his grace alone we have been forgiven and can find in Christ life and uh, eternal life and, and hope forevermore. So that's that's what we want to give people, that good gospel hope, and we give that to Roman Catholic friends, even if they're right on a lot of matters of morality, even if we find common ground with them. Don't stop preaching to your Roman Catholic friends and family members, whoever else it is. Keep sharing the gospel with them. Don't trust the fact that, well, they agree with us on this or that, and they seem so conservative on this or that issue. Don't don't stop there. Um, make sure you get at the heart of what they believe. Ask them that evangelism explosion question that D. James Kennedy years ago and his friends came up with down in Florida. If you stood before the Lord tonight and he said, why should I accept you in my heavenly kingdom? You died, you got hit by a bus. Why? What would you say? What would you say? Listen to their answer. And if they mention good works or this or that, or I try to be a good person, or probably I'm not going to get into heaven but purgatory, like blast it open with the, the gospel of hope and uh, tell them that there is um, only one media, that there is only one hope, Jesus Christ the righteous, there is no purgatory. Uh, love them enough to speak the truth in love and challenge 
any kind of reliance on good works or self-righteousness. Uh, direct them to the righteousness found in Jesus Christ alone, and may they cling to that. And uh, may they uh, turn and repent and trust in Christ alone. But we do thank God for that uh, commonality we have on some of these moral matters, some of these other things. And there are many good thinkers that we can learn from and we should be humbled by in terms of the, what they produced and put out and uh, how they push us towards the transcendent. But don't stop there with some of their works and, and certainly always test it according to the scriptures. Amen, brother. Amen. Uh, what I hear is uh, slightly different than what some whippersnappers weren't around to remember. Um, evangelicals and Catholics together. Early mm-hmm. 90s, I believe. Uh, where they kind of went off was in some of the flowery statements yes. that they made um, jointly, mm-hmm. uh, conveying that there was more unity and the oh, yeah. core essentials of their theology, including maybe soteriology, then that agreement warranted because that, yes. um, that whole agreement was uh, generally around the issue of co-belligerency and, and um, cultural issues. Now, if you just pause, wow, from the 90s to now, mm-hmm. they, they thought, and that statement was years in the making, mm-hmm. and they thought they needed to, to present a united front to um, work for a common cause. Oh, yeah. What would people think now, you know? Oh, man. Um, but, you know, better men than me were so tempted to make those oh, yeah. unfortunate concessions in the areas of theology and soteriology. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is humbling to me. But um, yeah. as you mentioned, some people um, throughout this interview, um, like MacArthur, D. James Kennedy, mm-hmm. R.C. Sproul, those men... Ankerberg, John Ankerberg. Yeah, they stood Michael Horton. Yep. up and said, hey, you know, it kind of went off. Solo fide. Yeah, but you know, Council of Trent still condemns yeah. and anathematizes justification by faith alone, and they hold to that council, and to this day they hold to that, which is directly contradictory to the scriptures and repeatedly contradictory to the scriptures. So many scriptures, Ephesians two: By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing; it is the gift of God, so that no one can boast. Right. I mean, so many texts like that, but yeah, you're. It's interesting because that that my. History professor, church history professor, Dr. John Woodbridge, and I had many conversations about this because I disagree with him on evangelicals and Catholics together strenuously. But I was also learning from him a lot, right, and had respect and reverence for him. And um, so you have the original kind of uh, Protestants of J.I. Packer, and you've got who? Richard Land from the uh, um, Southern, Southern Baptist, Baptist Convention, yeah. and then Chuck Colson, the late Chuck mm-hmm. Colson, right, from Prison Fellowship. Who was an evangelical Catholic, or was it Catholic evangelical? That's right, that's yeah, right, something, something like that that yeah. he went by. But these these men who in many ways we've learned from, and we recommend some of their some of their stuff and appreciate some of their stuff, but they, they, bandy, or they banded together with others— um, even uh, uh, Bill Bright from Campus Crusade, um, and uh, I'm trying to think of any others. So many mind. others, really. Uh, Pant Robertson, so many others. Yeah. Uh, but th- then these other Catholics, like Peter Kreft, who mentioned earlier, was one of them. And I do think, I do think, with evangelicals and Catholics together, that the, the issue and the compromise was connected to sola fide, justification by faith alone, but also the heart of the gospel. And I think the language in there that Timothy George and, and Mark Knoll. Um, Chuck Colson, J.I. Packer, some of these, some of these other individuals, um, 
really kind of gave a lot of credence to or gave too much of a rope to. Because if you read some of the history of this, it seems to me that one of the reasons this came out was because in particularly Latin America, South America, Latin, Central South America, uh, you have missionaries who were at odds. So this is my understanding of how it came about. They were like even harming each other physically mm-hmm. and they wanted to do something to show there's actually more camaraderie so that the violence would cease as well. It was rooted in this good intention, but it went way beyond what we ought to um, support and it led to a number of responses and a series of um, you know talks and messages and uh, R.C. Sproul, um, the late R.C. Sproul, but uh, while he was still living about 10 years ago or so, wrote um, maybe less than that, but he wrote Are We Together? Short little book, very helpful little book, and just went through the differences between Rome and Christianity and went through how how we're, again, he didn't do all we just did in terms of co-belligerency, but he just said, on these key matters, there's still a massive gulf that has not been overcome. And um, again, I would say you cannot impose upon your Roman Catholic friend or family member or coworker what the Roman Catholic tradition or hierarchy believes. The vast majority of time, I found that I, I find that I know the tradition way better than they do, than that individual lay, lady person knows the tradition. And they actually don't agree with their, a lot of tra- the tradition about praying to Mary and these kinds of things. They don't agree with that, but they don't also don't understand it. And so there's confusion on there. There's a lack of clarity from a number of them. So get to know them individually and what they believe before you just impose upon them what every Catholic believes or this or that. But I do think there was a dangerous concession that now gave a green light to many evangelicals who are just in the pews, this kind of a thing. But we, we need to have this sense of don't view Rome and those who are Roman Catholics as not a mission field. Don't view them as those you shouldn't evangelize. Don't just kind of green light them into the kingdom or say, yeah, they don't need Christ. We're, you know, they're, they're close or this kind of a thing. That's That's dangerous. That's foolish. Get to know them. Get to know what they believe. Get to know what they believe about truth and the gospel, salvation, and all these matters. Don't just assume salvation because that is a very dangerous and foolish presumption. Don't be, again, some jerk who's always, you know, the the, the police or something. But, again, if you are able to have spiritually meaningful conversations, press them on salvation, on grace, on Christ, his person and his work. Is, is there more needed? You know, Karl Barth years ago, and I don't like a lot of Karl Barth's writing. He was a profound thinker in many ways and shaped the, the church in a lot of ways, too. He's another one we could do a whole episode on for sure. Mm-hmm. But Karl Barth one time said this, and he's right. And forgive the language here, but he called it that, this is Karl Barth's line, that damned Catholic and. He said it's grace and work works. It's the Bible and tradition. It's Christ and the priest. You know, it's it's always that damned Catholic and. And it is it is infuriating because it is always this addition to, this subtle sneaking in of something that actually undermines Christ's work, undermines grace, undermines the sufficiency of those things, and the sufficiency and the clarity of the word. And so I just I just think as much as we can respect many uh, Roman Catholic thinkers and appreciate their writings on this or that, we cannot endorse them and say, yes, this is a brother, this is a sister in Christ. I think that goes too far. And I know many evangelicals want to do that because, again, we're pushed into this place where we have commonality with people as the darkness seems to push us closer and closer together. We're pushing back against the, the, the culture of murder and death and, and uh, the, the celebration and elevation of kind of personal autonomy and self-fulfillment. And, and that often comes at what? The price of birth control, the price of, you know, being in favor of abortion, the price of, well, your dreams require this kind of sacrifice. I remember reading this thing recently about 
this woman who was saying, she was like, I, you know, the shout your abortion thing, right? It was kind of in line with that. And she said, yes, I had abortions and I don't regret them. It allowed me to pursue this and get financially stable, succeed in my dreams. And then I had two wonderful, beautiful children once it was the right time for me. But she, but she was basically saying abortion was the right choice for me and murdering these children, you know, was something that, that was right for me. Now, those are the stories we hear in the media, but we don't hear. Uh, is a story of a lady named Sherry, who I heard just last year share a sobering tale about her abortions. And the line that stuck out with me was this. She said, um, every day I wake up thinking the police should come and arrest me. Every day I think I'm guilty and I committed murder. I'm an aid. I aided and abetted murder. And this is something that as a woman who had an abortion, got converted and became a Christian later in life, realized, and she has kids herself. Um, but she said, every day I think I should go to jail. Every day I think there should be punishment for me. I should be, there should be some penalty. And she's like, I know it's hard because Christ has forgiven me and our laws are not just right now. But she's like, I know what I did was wrong. I know God has forgiven me in Christ. I know our laws are not in accord with sound teaching and good moral principles and not just. But um, that was very fascinating because you wonder how many more people, Roman Catholic Protestant, whatever, are in that camp, and how many more we can reach out to, share the good news of Christ with, help them find that hope, but then there's a disconnect between knowing they live in an unjust society and they live in a, a God's world still. And uh, and so, again, Lord willing, as we think through evangelicals and Catholics together, we're thinking biblically, we're thinking precisely, we're not just blanking, you know, giving this blank check of like, yeah, we're all Christians, but I think a lot of those men and women who signed that document, um, even guys who I respect, Oz Guinness, J.I. Packer learned from a lot. Um, Thomas Oden, the late Thomas Oden, these guys are ones who I learned a lot from, but they signed this evangelicals and Catholic together thing. And I think that they compromised on far, far, far too much. And we need to be more precise, despite the good intention of trying to help the, you know, violence to, you know, subside down in uh, Central South America, these kinds of things. But we, we as evangelical Christians have got to think clearly and biblically on these things and cannot compromise even if our evangelical thought leaders are doing such. We've seen that in recent years, too. Yeah. I, I wonder um, <laughs> if if the, a lack of knowledge of, of culture in Central and South America could have um, assisted with that and True. avoided some things. Because, I mean, when we talk about Latin America, people get violent over soccer games. So good point. They get, they <laughs> good get violent point. over everything. Good so, point. Um, good point. But that's that's another story. That's for right. Another time. That's right. Um, I think we should uh, dry our feet from uh, waiting in the Tiber for today. <laughs> yes, that's right. And uh, I think we should, uh, you know. Um, Prepare for Reformation Day 2023. Um, it's not a holiday, of course. It's just uh, a historical day that you know we could commemorate and, and think about, especially if you belong to a uh, Reformed church, mm -hmm. as we do. Yes. Um, and so I look forward to uh, any musings that any anybody may have on this upcoming Reformation Day. Hmm. I wonder. So... Um, Thank you so much for your time, Pastor Brandon. This has been an enlightening and productive and hopefully helpful uh, episode for our audience, sharing on uh, how we can uh, be co-belligerent mm -hmm. with uh, our Romanist friends, even yes. though our confessions may be different. Yes. But, um, I mean, once again, you know, in principle, you know, we have neighbors that are... Uh, 
diverse, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. we we do the same with them as well. So um, these are thought-provoking things and areas that we could definitely expand upon, and our listeners can definitely apply these things wherever they live. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a big country, a big world, mm-hmm. and so um, we want to do what God's Word says, live at peace mm-hmm. with all men as far as it's possible within us. As far us. as it's possible, yes so, and amen. Um, that is something that is worthy to be kept in mind at all amen. times. And never at the expense of the truth. Correct. You'll never have any true peace, any lasting peace, any God-honoring peace if you sacrifice the truth, um, if you sacrifice it at the, the altar of truth. And um, I'm sorry, sacrifice truth at the altar of peace. That's the way Calvin put it. It's exactly right. Um, there's no such thing of, of saying, well, even though we have this massive disagreement on truth, um, and this glaring massive di- disagreement over a matter of salvation, a matter of God's grace, a matter that is connected to the revealed word of the living God. Um, you cannot think that you have true or lasting peace. Amen, brother. Thank you, Pastor. I'll see you next time. Absolutely. God bless. Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers. 